RadioInfluence.com. Well, we're into the third week of January. It'll be February before we know it. It's Rush the Field. I'm Scott Seidenberg alongside veteran coach, scout, and consultant Chris Landry from LandryFootball.com. The offseason rolls on, Chris, and we keep rolling on here on Rush the Field. Absolutely. It's uh, it's it's a busy time of year, obviously, in the college football world, as there's still some coaching um, uh, movements from assistant coaches. And then, uh, obviously, they're trying to hammer those final uh, nuggets down uh, and getting finishing up on recruiting, which is fast approaching um, in February, which will kind of finish off, top off everybody's recruiting class. So um, it's a busy time, no doubt about it, in, in the college football circuit. Yeah, and a busy week for you because you're actually going to be at Senior Bowl practice all this week. What what is this? Why does the Senior Bowl separate itself from the other postseason All Star games? Well, it is coached by NFL uh, coaches, so that's a big part of it. It is the closest thing. Um, it's it's basically the first pro environment that these you know prospects have because. They're coached by pro coaches. Um, they have, as a result of that, uh, the best crop of prospects. You know, last uh, week we had the East-West game and we had the NFLPA game, which has some good players. They're more uh, of the top quality players at the Senior Bowl. It is the premier one because of the pro coaches. And the there, there has been a little bit of leeway given in the past for underclassmen who have graduated uh, get can allow to participate in it. But for the most part, uh, it's just for seniors. And I think it's most important, uh, and I'm working on something on LandryFootball.com to put up, um, it's most important for the small college guys because it gives them uh, their first opportunity to play against the top-level competition around the country, which they don't face on a week-to-week basis. So, you know, a kid at Old Dominion, a kid at Delaware, Western Illinois, Alabama State, a Stetson, a New Mexico State, a Charleston, guys like that. And there's some really good ones, uh, by the way, um, that that will play and be really high picks, but they're probably going to be largely affected this week by how well they they play uh, during this uh, these practices. So the practices are very scripted from a pro standpoint. It's designed to get individual uh, work done more than teamwork done. So a lot of one-on-ones. So you can see that offensive uh, tackle from Elon College go up against a kid from Clemson. And um, you don't really get to see that uh, if, if you're obviously coming from a small school like that or Slippery Rock or whatever the case may be. So would you say that this is like the first step in the combine process? Because you get a lot of these kids that are going to come to the combine and the NFL coaches, they're going to put them through all these drills and stuff. But here we are before the combine, months before the combine, and they're getting this opportunity to work with these NFL coaches. So would you say that this is the pre-combine combine almost? It's the first step, actually. You know, last week at the the uh, the East West, and certainly this week is the first step into the scouting process of you know the draft process, I should say. Obviously, for the teams that whose seasons are done, this is the first entry with the coaches, the NFL coaches who've not looked at college players on film during the season. This is their first opportunity to start to look at these guys. Uh, it's different than the combine. As you mentioned, the combine is going to take place in the month. That's a completely different environment. This is a football environment. I think it's a useful environment, but it's a different one because it's football. It's, a, it's watching them in practice, seeing them compete. You can spend time with them in meetings, particularly for one of the, the, the two teams coaching them. Um, you get a lot accomplished here from a football standpoint. The combine is more about the medical physicals. It's more about the interviews. Um, it, it's it's more about the intangible part and getting the the exact measurables uh, for all of these players. So, uh, listen, it's all part of getting to know these players a little more. The scouts that have scouted them for not only this year but the past couple of years are fully aware of all their background information. But in the modern-day world of scouting, it is about – um, it's not like when I was running it where the scouts pretty much ran the draft. Now the scouts 
gather a lot of information, get a lot of details on the players, get some evaluations, kind of set the table for the coaching staffs in which the coaching staffs now become involved uh, as the NFL season is winding down or, or basically over. And then now they become involved in looking not only at the current players on their team, uh, the current crop of free agents, but now are starting to delve into the prospects. Um, and you get to see good 80, 90 players here at the Senior Bowl. And it's a good way to start to get a good feel for them to, before we get ready for the combine here in about a month. So who's coaching this year's game? I think last year it was Bill O'Brien and Vance Joseph, right? Yeah, absolutely. We got the the, the Niners here uh, in this game and the, the Raiders. So okay. we get to both the West Coast teams uh, get involved in it. So it's a real good opportunity for both. Yeah, didn't Gus Bradley coach for like four years in a row or something like that? Yeah, we've had a few, and it's a real it's a real advantageous to have uh, an opportunity to coach these players because you get to have them in meetings. And you get to really know about a guy's capacity and willingness to learn. Uh, you get a really good insight into it. And there's been a lot of play. And we go back to Philip Rivers was coached by the Chargers and, you know, Dak Prescott by, by the Cowboys. I mean, there are a lot of, lot of stories like that that lead to, you know, you get to know a guy and you get a really good feel for whether you'd like, um, you'd like to coach him or not. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, while we're on the topic of coaches, Chris, I want to talk about the Alabama coaching staff because that was the big news around college football this week. A couple of more assistant coaches joining Nick Saban's staff. Uh, we had already heard that he had hired Steve Sarkeesian to return and become the offensive coordinator. Sark is bringing over Kyle Flood, who was with him. The former Rutgers head coach was with Sarkeesian in Atlanta as the offensive line coach. We now know that Charles Kelly is jumping on board. Mm-hmm. Sal Sunsiri is jumping on board, and Charles Huff as well. So Nick Saban adding to his staff. um, But I wanted to get into why. And and maybe we know why there's so much turnover because it's it's a coaching pipeline. Like we have all these coaching trees in the NFL. The coaching tree of Nick Saban is very, you know, know, profitable, if you will, uh, going around the country. But why is there so much turnover, more so it seems with Alabama under Nick Saban than when we have with other programs around the country? Well, it is different um, because for two reasons. One, you kind of alluded to it. Um, It is a place where coaches come in uh, to get it on their resume, to get that experience and to move on for bigger and better opportunities. And that is part of it. So you have that kind of revolving door in that regard Two, Nick Saban is very hard to coach for. So um, it is not. And, and what I mean by that, he's super demanding. It is not, it's a very business like atmosphere as opposed to maybe more like more than a family type atmosphere. It's, it's a, it's a very much a meat grinder. He's, um, he, he's a hard, you know, grinding guy. He worked very hard. Nick and I worked together on Bill Belichick's staff in Cleveland. I, you know, helped him a lot when he got started at Michigan state with certain staff and recruiting issues. And I've had a number of guys that have come in and uh, they're guys that are coaching and head coaches in the NFL and college. They got their start under Saban, but, and they all, you know, respect, him and all have learned a lot from him, but it is uh, very few of them stay there for the long term because it is a meat grinder uh, effect. So you've got the fact that it's tough to work for him and to stay there very long. And then you've got the fact that they want to move on because of that and because of opportunity. And then let's just be honest, Nick runs guys off. If he doesn't get what he wants, he, you know, a lot of these guys that are leaving, He's pushing out the door. Let's take, for example, this season. Mike Loxley, the offensive coordinator, gets the head job at Maryland. Okay, makes sense. Um, Josh Gaddis, who he hired from um, Penn State last year off of James Franklin's staff as a wide receiver coach. Well, he was kind of involved in the passing game as a receiver coach. He was not going to get the offensive coordinator job at Alabama. He wasn't going to get promoted. He gets the offensive coordinator job at Michigan. Well, common sense. You're going to take that job. Dan Enos, who I thought Nick would give strong consideration to naming him as offensive coordinator and play caller. 
he was a quarterback coach, did a good job with not only Tua, but Jalen Hurts. Um, Nick was not comfortable handing over the play calling duties. So Dan moves on to Miami to be the coordinator for Manny Diaz, who's a defensive coach. So there again, that's another guy. Uh, Brent Key, offensive line coach, goes to Georgia Tech, which is his alma mater, is going to be kind of the run game coordinator for Jeff Collins and the offensive line coach. So you, you, you see some changes there where it's a little bit of, well, maybe pushing them out the door. And let me just say this, that Nick has been prone to make decisions in a reactive manner. Last year, when he made those hires that I mentioned, and particularly uh, Josh, uh, Josh Gaddis, Tosh Lapoy, that's another guy, defensive coordinator. He basically hired him and Josh Gaddis for their recruiting prowess, two of the best recruiters in the country. Yeah. The problem was Tosh Lapoy was a little green as a play caller on defense. So what happens quietly last week, Nick kind of pushes him out the door Tosh is going to be the new defensive line coach of the Cleveland Browns. Yeah, he's going to the NFL, you know, yep. So the point is, is Tosh was a recruiter. He gets an opportunity now to improve his ability as an on-the-field coach, which he needs, and he goes to do it in the NFL. Because of the NFL, you're not recruiting. You've got to really earn your chops as a position coach and work your way there. So those are the reasons. Now, what we've seen is now because he felt like Nick did that maybe his staff wasn't, they didn't develop and coach quite as well. He's going back with people that he's more familiar with that are a little bit more proven teachers. Steve Sarkeesian, you mentioned, has been around him. Kyle Flood, as you mentioned, was around Sark, really good line coach, and he replaces uh, Brent Key. Sal Sunseri comes in. Sal Sunseri was a defense coordinator at Florida. Former linebacker coach under Saban. Again, familiarity with these guys. Charles Charles Huff is the running back coach and running game coordinator at Mississippi State. Hired, he was also at Penn State with Joe Moorhead. So experienced guy within the league is familiar with. Charles Kelly, you mentioned. I uh, was a special teams coach, safety coach, a guy he's familiar with. So he's what he's done is he kind of surrounded himself with new blood ideas but he thought he got away from an ability uh, as an on-the-field teacher, and so he's trying to get back to that, whereas opposed to last year, he was hiring more recruiters because he ended up with the fifth-best recruiting class in the country instead of the top. So I think what you're seeing is a little bit of a reactionary. So when people say, well, what is it? Is it Nick runs people off? Well, yeah. Is people get tired of working for Nick? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, is, is, is guys want to move on for better opportunities? Yes, it's all of that in in a nutshell, and it is a different environment. A lot of it's been debated and talked about that, hey, is it better at Clemson because it's more of a family atmosphere at Clemson with Dabble Sweeney? Oh, absolutely it is. I know those guys on that staff, they have very little turnover. You know, some of those guys have been there a while. They're probably more selective about where they want to go. I mean, they're not going to leave unless it's a perfect opportunity because they love the atmosphere. Well, Dabble's more of a CEO. Dabble lets guys breathe a little bit. It's more of a family atmosphere, so they like it. Nothing wrong with that. But we also see that Nick is his personality is that, you know, while Dabo needs his assistance to be more involved because Dabo's not the great X's and O guy and he gives them flexibility. When you come to Alabama, you don't come in to implement your style. You come in to learn Nick's style. So Nick sets the foundation. Nick sets the course of what you want. You're coming into his classroom and he's going to teach you what he does, and then you can pick up and leave and go with it. So you have more of a revolving door. When you go to a place like Clemson, you kind of go into the classroom, and you're working for one of those teachers that I don't know for people can relate to this. You ever been in a class where you kind of teach yourself, and you you study, and you kind of give oral reports on different topics, and and that's it's a lot more freedom there but you need to have a lot more experience where Nick is more of a trainer of coaches and more of a guy that you're not going to come in and run his style. He wants ideas, but he's going to going to kind of temper those ideas to fit into the overall scope of what they want to do. 
offensively, defensively, special teams, everything. And, and that's the reason why there's such the turnover. And if you look at it, there were seven assistant changes last year. There's a lot this year. I think there's a lot more talk about it this year because they got blown out of yeah, the championship game. Lost. But it is a pretty regular occurrence, Scott. Now, okay, we know that the, the Alabama coaching budget is higher than most programs in the country if it's mm-hmm. not the highest budget in the country. And we know that Nick Saban employs some of these guys as consultants where they are, right. he'll bring in former head coaches that their job is just to watch film and to offer some advice and give their suggestions and take notes and be in the booth during the games. And they're not coaching during the games, but they're an offensive assistant, an offensive <clears throat> consultant. He has the ability to hire these good football minds because they do spend a lot on coaching more so than other programs around the country. But why has it gotten to the point? And you see this, Chris, talking to people around college football and whether it's writers, analysts, or just fans, there has been this negative connotation that has come along with working for Nick Saban, where it's not exactly, and you mentioned the comparison with him and Dabo Swinney, where at Clemson, it's more of a family style atmosphere and Dabo is more of the CEO and he welcomes everybody to do their jobs. Nick might be more of the, you know, the totalitarian where it's his way or the highway. What is it about Nick Saban? And you've worked with him, obviously. You've known him for several years. What is it about him that working for him, even though it's great for your career, it's a stepping stone, it'll propel you into another job, it has that negative connotation. Nick is not the easiest guy to work for, and it doesn't seem like a fun environment. Well, it, it the, the what is it is its personality. But the reason why I think it's getting some negative connotation is because they didn't win the national title. Um, you know, it, again, when when they win, it's like, oh man, yeah, it's the heart. You know, when they win, it's, it's, when, when they, they win, have, it's you know, Lane Kiffin throwing his hands in the air before the play is over, and everybody's cheering. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's exactly right. And, and in you know, in this case. Uh, when you don't win, oh, you see, that's the problem. Well, you know how that is. That's that is when when you're winning and the guy is a easygoing head coach. You see, boy, they love to play for him, a player's coach. When that same coach loses, you see, he runs a loose ship. You know, <laughs> and you always have uh, it. Yep. Just the reality is that's just the answer is very simple. It's his personality. Um, I know Nick. I've known him for a long time. As I said, I've never worked for him, but I've worked with him and. I tell people all the time because I get asked this a million times. Okay, Chris, Bill Belichick, Nick Saban, you know, exactly like different. And believe it or not, they're they're different, yet they're alike. Personality wise, this may shock folks. Belichick is far more uh, personable, not to the media, but, you know, I, I, I can tell you Belichick is – you know, um, you know, always someone that that was, you know, friendly. I mean, w- when we were on staff together, I mean, Belichick's the head coach. And, you know, Belichick is, you know, hey, you know, I'm going to the Indians game. You know, why don't you come join us this week? And he's, he's that type of guy. Saban is just not a very personable guy. Um, I, I love him. But, you know, and I, and I tell him all the time and I've done a lot of work for him and I've helped him. But I wouldn't work for him um, at this stage of my life. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't put up with it just because I know how he is. And I prefer to, you know, deal with it in a different way to where if he needs my help, I will assist it. And it's more business. Uh, it's more um, he's just from a personality standpoint is the best way I can put it. Look, mm-hmm. I I worked for Bill Orange Barker, who. A lot of folks may not know who that is. He's one of the great defensive coaches of all time. He invented the 3-4 defense. He was the coach of the Dolphins in the Don Shula era, the no-name defense. And um, and, and I'm going to tell you, he was the worst personality guy I've ever been around. So Saban and Bill Belichick were, you know, uh, life of the parties compared to, to Orange Barker. So I've been around some curmudgeons. I just think in this day and age, some people are, are, are it's very, very hard. Um, there's not that family atmosphere and family day and this or that. And 
you know, I think people are just a little bit more critical because, as they say, he will give you the rear end chewing, um, not just on the sidelines, but in staff meetings. He's been known to do that to staff. And I think a lot of guys don't, you know, I mean, it's tough for them. I mean, it. no one likes the butt chewing, but, you know, it, it also creates an environment to where there's no stone unturned. And he does have a large staff and he does bring in guys that want to come for the experience. Yes, he pays a lot of money. Butch Jones is on the staff. He's not getting paid by Alabama. He's getting paid by Tennessee. Yeah. And, but he's learning and going. Lane Kiffin rehabilitated his career. Steve Sarkeesian, you know, rehabilitated mm-hmm. his career. And, you know, so you're seeing a lot. Kyle Flood had some off the field issues. Think about it. I mean, um, Nick wanted to hire last year at this time, Hugh, Hugh Freeze, Freeze on his uh-huh. staff. Um, that was something that the SEC put the kibosh on. But so I guess my point is, is you, you know, you, you, you know what you're going into, you know what it is, but I think some guys that come in with different ideas and come in with, a, with and maybe don't know Nick all that well and are young or maybe older, they can't handle it, which is why Nick is going with guys that quite um, frankly, to, to be upfront and blunt about it, kind of know Nick's personality, know Nick's, know Nick's edge, and they know what they're going to deal with. So, you know, you're going to see Sark and Sinceri and Kelly. Those guys have had a long, you know, had enough of a background with Nick that they're going to, they're more inclined to be able to hand, handle it and deal with it and just move, you know, just move about their their day as opposed to somebody that maybe is uh, less experienced and uh, less familiar with that. Well, from one uh, head coach to another, let's talk about a guy who is as polarizing as they come in this week's edition of State of the Program here on Rush the Field. What's going on at your favorite school? This is State of the Program on Rush the Field. And Chris, today's school is the number 14 team in the nation, the Michigan Wolverines, led by the always polarizing Jim Harbaugh. Now, we know that this school has a rich history, of course, going back to the days of Bo Schembechler and the rivalry with Woody and Ohio State. We know that, Chris. But Jim Harbaugh, who's a Michigan man, took this job because this was the dream job for him. But here's a guy who has yet to beat Ohio State in his short tenure as the Michigan Wolverine head coach. And this program, which I think was a little better than expectations last year, I just don't know where they go from here. So let's take a look at the Michigan Wolverines. Well, let's, I think it's a great tradition, and, and it's one of the greatest traditions in college football. And as, as I do this, and we bring it back to Jim Harbaugh, and uh, really one of the iconic, uh, played for one of the iconic coaches in football history. Let's kind of go back into the Michigan history. If you think about it, it's from the wing helmet to the the great fight song. I mean, some of the um, some of the, the the you know most wins in college football history. Uh, we're talking about a school that w- uh, was an original member of the Big Ten when its inception took place in 1896. But then I don't know what people know this. They got out of the Big Ten in 1907 to 1916, and they came back. And joined the Big Nine. Yes, it was the Big Nine, and they became the Big Ten again. They won 42 Big Ten titles. They finished in the top 10 38 times. Um, had some great histories before the old Bo Schembeck. We had Fielding Yost became the head coach in 1901. Fritz Chrysler brought the wing helmet from Princeton. Yes, if you go back and, and you look at Princeton's helmets. That's right. They've got the wing helmets. Yep. That was brought over by Fritz Chrysler from Princeton in 1938. And when he came over, it was very like, are you going to leave Princeton, a power in the east, to come out west to Michigan? Uh, Well, he led them to the national title in 47 and the Michigan second Rose Bowl win. So you go back to that early history and and you think about it. Uh, one of the real interesting things about Michigan was when they started, and they started in 1881, 
They played against Harvard in Boston, and that game marked the birth of intersectional football. And it was kind of a, in that time, a polarizing moment. And then they started to kind of travel, and that's kind of how they did it back in those days by trains. And on their way to a game in Chicago in 1887, Michigan stopped by a little town in South Bend, Indiana, and introduced football to the students at the University of Notre Dame. November 23rd, that marked the inception of Notre Dame football. So Michigan predates Notre Dame football. And then, of course, in 1894, Michigan defeated Cornell, which is the first time in college football history that a Western school, yes, Western school Michigan defeated the established power in the East. In fact, when Michigan left the Big Ten, they went into the Western Conference. But to give you an idea, Fielding Yost, which is the first great coach at Michigan from 1901 to 1926, uh, that's he was the coach. 1901 to 1905, Scott, 55-1-1 one one was his record. <laughs> they, they won four national you, titles. You know what that they, makes me think uh, of, it, though? It makes me think of, like, all right, so when Rutgers played Princeton, in the first ever football game, right? You know, Rutgers is the birthplace of college football. That Rutgers Princeton game, the score was what three to two? Is that is yes, that correct? Yes. So, but, but, but get but but get this: during that time period, and they won four national titles. They outscored their opponents two thousand eight hundred twenty-one to forty-two. Yeah, see, that's what that's what it reminds you of. This was it was so different back then. It like was. the scoring was different when football first started, and now we're talking about <laughs> in the early nineteen hundreds going fifty-five and one. Yeah, they, they didn't lose a game from one <laughs> to four, and uh, they lost in nineteen oh five to. Should the Chicago Maroons coached by Amos Alonzo Stagg. So as I mentioned, they get back and, you know, they 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 opened up. They they had a, a stadium uh, back then that was very, very small. And it, it, it held like 18,000 seats. Uh, Ferry Field is what it was called. 1927, uh, it, Fielding Yost got the Michigan Stadium built and it was uh, 72,000. And just if you think about what a visionary it was, they thought eventually we're going to build a hundred thousand seat stadium because the way the structure was built, even though it was 72, it had expandable capabilities and boy, hasn't it? It's been unbelievable. Well, and the then big of course, house is one of the, obviously it's one of it the is. premier destinations in college football <laughs> and one of the largest stadiums in the country. Yeah. You had a hundred thousand seats before anybody else had it. And, but back then, can you imagine 72,000 seats in 1927? No, in 1927. I can't even fathom it. Yeah. So then Fritz Chrysler comes in and he coaches, you know, again, he was coaching at Princeton and, and it, you know, here's the thing that was innovative about, and that's where Chrysler arena is named after him. He didn't feel his Michigan team could match up with the great army team. So he took advantage of the new rule in 1941 that allowed players to enter or leave the game at any point of the game. He was the first guy to divide the team into offensive and defensive teams. Wow. And, and it was the first. He was the father of the two-platoon football. Now, they still lost to Army 28-7, but he developed that two-platoon uh, two football under the way uh, to winning a national championship in 1947. Then, you know, when he retired in 47 and was moved upstairs uh, as the athletic director, Bernie Ustaban was a great player for them, um, you know, in uh, in 25 to, to 27 uh, in the old fielding Yost uh, er, er days. Uh, he didn't have, he had initial success, not as much. Then they went to bump Elliott and that just w didn't work well. So from 48 to 68, it was a 20-year run where it just wasn't obviously what they had experienced in the first half of the century. Then 1969 comes Bo. Bo Schembechler, yep. Bo, and, and, and it was interesting because I can remember the stories of the athletic director at Michigan at the time. The great Don Canham said it took 15 minutes to to get the, the, the Bo Schembechler to, to, to take the job. It was – he was uh, coaching with Miami, Miami in the um, in the MAC, mm -hmm. and they didn't throw a whole lot of money at him. Um, and it was interesting because back in the day when they hired Chrysler from Princeton, they said, you know, they're not going to get him. They told Fritz, he says, "We'll pay you whatever you want," and and it was a blank check, and he just he <laughs> he, he he got whatever he wanted. 
when Bo took the job, Don Canham sold them on the idea of Michigan history. And when they went to Michigan, true story, the facilities, the locker room, the weight room, which really was not much of a weight room at that time, wasn't as good as the University of Miami at the time. And that's how, you know, how, how you know, committed Bo was to building Michigan. Well, from 1970 to 1974, he won four Big Ten titles, went 54-1. and one, and That's of course, the, the 10-year war started, yeah. Absolutely. And the 69 Ohio State team, that first year that Bo was there, that's where it started because it was a 17-point favorite, maybe one of the best teams in college football history that Woody had at Ohio State. And Bo upset him. So it, it was the start of that 10 year war. No question about it. And then, you know, from 81 to 89, you know, Bo had really good success. Then it started to flame out a little bit. They hand the job over to offensive coordinator Gary Moeller. And this is where I have a little bit of a background. I'm coaching. I told you last week that I had an opportunity to go to Syracuse. Ironically, uh, this won't happen every week, I can tell you, but I had an opportunity <laughs> to go to Michigan as well. Gary Moeller is the head coach. There was a really good defensive coordinator that I became very good friends with by the name of Lloyd Carr. And, and I go and interview for the job at Chim Beckler Hall. And to my, not surprise, but to my shock, I'm, you know, meeting with different coaches and talking with different things. And I'm told, now oh, you got one person you need to interview with. And I said, okay. I thought it was the athletic director, somebody. It's Bo. It's Bo Still having an office in Schembrechler Hall, retired, <laughs> Gary Moore, the head coach, and he's sitting there with that gravelly voice, and what is the guy from Louisiana ought to do coming up to Michigan? And it is a gravelly guy. It was, it was quite an experience, but Moeller, you know, did, did some good things. He had some pretty good teams. They won the conference outright, and had 10 2, 9 0 uh, 3 records. Uh, probably um, the, the 92 team with uh, Elvis Gerback, 9-0-3. They defeated Washington in the in the 93 Rose Bowl. And then they had um, eight and four records in 93 and 94. And then you might remember that 94 game was probably, that 94 season was most known for a game that they lost to Colorado in the Hail Mary. The Hail Mary, Michael Westbrook. Cordell Stewart. Absolutely. The miracle at Michigan. Oh, I remember that highlight. I, I absolutely. One of the first, uh, one of the first VHS cassettes that I had that I was like obsessed with. And I don't know why, maybe it was because I was, you know, I was coming into the age where I was starting to really appreciate sports, but I had the sports illustrated year in review, 1994. Now we know 1994 is probably the most important year in pop culture history. Uh, if you know, all you have to say is the OJ chase and that's it. Everything else falls into place. But 94, you had the Olympics, right? You had uh, a world cup. You, you had, um, you know, Florida state, the tainted title. You had, uh, the Knicks and, and the Rangers winning and, and, or the Knicks losing and, and, uh, the OJ chase during the NBA finals, the Rangers yeah. winning the Stanley cup and snapping the 54 year drought. Um, there was a lot. 1994 was an, an incredible year, but I remember that Cordell Stewart Hail Mary because it was in that cassette. It was on that tape in the 1994 sports year in review. It was one of the greatest plays of the year. Cordell Stewart to Michael Westbrook, Colorado beating Michigan on the Hail Mary. Yeah, it was, it was, in fact, you talked, pop culture um you would probably like this and uh uh madonna is a michigan graduate mm -hmm. i don't know how many people knew that Ger the gerald ford former president of michigan he played grad. there Ar correct he was uh, clarence darrell great uh, litigator arthur miller branch rookie the owner of, of, of the dodgers uh james earl jones this is cnn uh, yeah. you know that great gravelly watch all Michigan grads amongst many. But, you know, that same summer that you're reflecting uh, in the OJ chase was not a really good one for Gary Moeller as he, well, he was, he was um, out, yeah. found intoxicated in a restaurant and, and basically threw a punch in a police station and got uh, got fired. So the defensive coordinator, Lloyd Carr, takes over in 1995 and he signs that four-year contract worth, get this, Scott, are you sitting down? 
$250,000 per year. Um, and, and Chris, let's does, be honest. There are certain college football players that make more than that now. No, no, no. I'm kidding. Kidding, kidding. Totally oh, yeah. kidding. But so yes, he, the salaries now uh, do not look yeah, like that. Yeah, he had, you know, and, and I thought did a really good job, obviously, um, you know, at the time had some success against Ohio State's always important. John Cooper um, was at Ohio State was two ten and one against Michigan while at Ohio State. So that was well, that important. was probably one of the one of the more you know the six more one of the more successful tenures in recent memory. You know, Michigan under Lloyd Carr yes. winning. Um, you know, Charles Woodson. Uh, you know, Heisman Trophy winner there. You, you you can go back to all the the big time games that they played. The the Rose Bowls. Um, you know, the, the chances to play in a national title game. Just, uh, you know, all the incredible yeah. players that played for Michigan during those years. Uh, you know, Amani Toomer, who, you know, we both worked with. Um, yes. Just so many, uh, uh, you know, Tim Biaka Batuka. <laughs> yeah, countless a, a, names. A, a split title. I mean, you know, yeah. uh, it, it, a split t- national title. So, I mean, you know, think about that. Bo never won a national title. You know, uh, if you think about it, well, who won national titles at Michigan? Well, you know, Fielding Yills did, um, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> Fritz Chrysler did, Lloyd Carr did. You think about it. Bo did not. Um, and, and of course, you, you, in addition to those players with the great, you know, um, uh, the, 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 the one of the great games, I think the best game in the history in, in the game, Ohio State, Michigan is 2006 game which was unbelievable because you had uh, th- those teams were ranked, um, you-, you know, as high as they were playing one another. Uh, Bo died that week of the game. Uh, it was just phenomenal. And then, you know, then goes uh, as uh, if, if you might remember, and I don't know that people know this, but in Lloyd's last year, um, Lloyd had told uh, Mary Sue Coleman, the president of Michigan, that he was going to retire at the end of the year. The first game of his final season was when Michigan got shocked in the opener State. to Appalachian yes. State. So, yes. uh, and that was the last year. Then come Rich Rodriguez and the disaster that was. Then Brady well, Hulk. That yeah, came the, the rich. In. The Rich Rod was. Um, uh, here's a guy, and this is where I think they went wrong. Ryan Mallett was supposed to be the guy. At mm-hmm. Michigan, the next great quarterback, you know, going from, you know, Drew Henson, John Navarre, and then here comes Ryan Mallett to run this offense, this pro right. style offense, the prototypical, the Tom Brady mold quarterback, right? And we didn't. How do we talk about Michigan history this far? And we didn't even mention Tom Brady. Uh, but that's because Drew Henson was the that's starter. Coming. That's coming. Yeah. <laughs> but that's because Drew Henson was the starter, right? right. He played that's over right. Tom Brady. Anyway, um, they bring in Rich Rod, who comes from West Virginia, and he runs the 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 spread option offense. And Ryan Mallett's like. I'm not the quarterback of this offense. This isn't what I signed up for. And he's out the door. And so now exactly there's right. no quarterback to play in this offense. And it was it was just a disaster from the get go. It really was. So they go and hire uh, one of their own, Brady Hoke, who did a good job at Ball State, then San Diego State. He was an assistant under Lloyd Carr. Lloyd had a lot of influence still with Mary Sue Coleman um, at the time in, in terms of the president of Michigan and where they want to go. And uh, there was a lot of rumors about last miles that really weren't all that uh, accurate. And that's where they went. They went with Brady and Brady did a pretty good job. They, I know he lost to Iowa and Michigan state, but they finished 10 and two that first year and first win over Ohio state. I mean, he beat the Buckeyes. They beat Virginia tech in the sugar bowl. Things are looking pretty good. Second season, eight and five record dropped their season opening to Alabama and Dallas. And it just began to kind of, you know, come apart a little bit. And then we get to the part where Jim Harbaugh's in and uh, comes in and it's going to save the program. And it's hard to believe that, uh, you know, 2015, he gets in on December, 2014, they bring him in as the 20th coach. And you think it's a slam dunk hire. I thought it would be a slam dunk. Look at the job that the guy did university of San Diego at Stanford with the Niners. Uh, Unbelievable. Uh, He comes in, 
with a pretty good team left over. The one thing that Brady Hoke did really well is he was a recruiter. Well. Yeah. And um, and they led Michigan to a 10 and three record. They had a 41 seven win over Florida in the Citrus Bowl. Things are looking really good, really bright. And I'm thinking, boy, when he's going to be able to recruit his players, um, you know, not that he didn't have good players, but he's going to be able to put his program in. It's going to be really, really good. Boy, has it been a problem. And it well, just here, goes to show knock, you that Chris. even when you expect things to go mm-hmm. in the right direction, it, it 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 has gone woefully bad, mainly because he's done a, a really poor job with his offensive staff. There's not been much stability, and there's not been much adaptation to the modern-day passing game. Nope. And I think that has been the biggest issue that they've had. And so you go from that, hey, beating Florida in your first year to getting spanked by Florida this year. And you're thinking the program's going up after that first year. And now it's, you know, maybe going down, but then you start to look and say, all right, let's look at the future a little bit. They bring in the aforementioned Josh Gaddis. We were talking about experience uh, at, at Penn state, uh, but he's a, you know, new play caller, but has some different ideas and concepts for the passing game. Is Jim going to embrace that? Is he going to give him some freedom? There is no Urban Meyer. All due respect to Ryan Day, Ohio State has a better program, but, you know, you talk about pressure. Jim now, if he doesn't beat Ryan Day, and it, it becomes, then it becomes a real big issue at this point. So I think that, you know, it is hard to put your finger on um, where this Michigan program is. Well, here's what I'll They're- say about it, Chris. Okay, after a 10-3 and three season, which they had all the hype in the world, Shea Patterson coming back next year, or I should say this year, this is probably his best chance, and I'm talking about Jim Harbaugh, of getting this team to the college football playoff because he's prob- he has the best quarterback that he's ever had, and he had it last year with Shea Patterson. Now he gets another year of Patterson, if they don't get the job done this year, I don't know how much longer they go with this Jim Harbaugh plan because that would be five years now in the program. He's lost his last three bowl games and he hasn't beaten Ohio State. This year might be his best chance because of Patterson. Well, it might be, but look at the players he's losing off that great defense. A very yeah, talented and, defense um, yeah, yeah. That, mm-hmm. that, that, got, that got blown out by Ohio State, got blown out by Florida. And you wonder if they kind of lost their stinger a little bit at the end of the year defensively because they were held up by the problems on offense. Listen, it's a fair point. I think that Jim's recruited pretty well, not Ohio State well. I thought at this stage, I would have guaranteed you at this stage that Michigan and Ohio State would have been equals in terms of personnel, in terms of record, in terms of how they compete against one another, and it's been anything but. I do think that there's a great opportunity without Urban Meyer to maybe make some inroads, but we'll see. I think Ryan Day's off to a little bit of a head start in that the Ohio State program is more talented. It's better. Uh, Listen, I mean, it is just one of those things where you wonder, I thought maybe over the last year or two that maybe Jim would say, you know what, out of just pure pride, he might want to go somewhere else and kind of kind of leave it. But then now at this point, as every year goes by in mediocrity, and I don't want to say mediocrity, that's unfair. I mean, they're one in 10 games. That's pretty good. That's not what the expectation was. When they paid him, gave him that big life insurance policy, that big annuity, and this guy's getting paid Nick Saban type money, and they expect those type of results. And as you've alluded to, nothing could be further from the truth. So I think that it is is definitely a big year and it's going to be a pivotal one. But when you look at the history of the program, I mean, and think about, you know, uh, the great coaches, I thought we'd be talking about him like, uh, you know, we'd be talking about Bo or Fritz Chrysler and guys like that. And it just hasn't worked out. Look, I mean, their first great player. Well, excuse me. Their first Heisman Trophy winner was a great Tom Harmon, um, 1940. You know, Desmond Howard won one in 91 and then Charles Woodson in 97. So that that whole, you know, molar car era was a pretty good one. And but I remember back Dan Deardorff and what a great tackle he was in the late 60s. Jim managed a great tight end. Anthony Carter was their first great receiver. I remember Rob Lido, who not only had a good college career, but a good pro career with the Broncos. Really good. And, um, you know, Tom Brady 
you know, most known for his pro career, going to go down as the greatest maybe player in NFL history was, as you mentioned, somebody that didn't start, which uh, we still kind of wonder about, you know, hey, with Lloyd, <laughs> what was the deal there? But it is a program. Oh, come on. Drew Henson was going to go play baseball and Lloyd Carr needed to convince him to not play baseball. And, and he said, I'll give you the starting job. Just don't ruin your arm playing baseball. Yeah, well, I tell you what, it uh, it was something that, you know, they talk about the great job and the intangibles that Brady had. And, you know, uh, you know, I can remember doing the tape work scouting in the NFL when Tom came out and you saw he had some really good intangibles. Folks, I did not see what what Tom Brady has become. I didn't. He was slow, Chris. He was slow. He he didn't move well. he He didn't move well and he didn't have a really good arm. But it is a lesson in. If you are committed to the level that this guy's committed, which, by the way, I can only name three or four guys in my 40 years that I've watched football that have been as committed as these guys now approaching 30 years, having spent time as a scout or a coach. I've not seen uh, five guys with this type of commitment level. It shows you what you potentially can be. He's built his body into something that is uh, very capable of making all the throws and now cerebrally one of the, the greatest quarterbacks ever with one of, with the greatest coach ever. And all of a sudden there you have it. So it, it's a lesson to everyone that it is, uh, you can't judge the book by its cover always. Uh, but it is something that is, as we kind of go forward and look at this Michigan program, I am perplexed by what I'm seeing. Um, I absolutely thought more success it, they had success against Michigan State this year, um, but they've not fared well against them. They certainly have floundered and not been even close to Ohio State. Um, you know, got beat by Notre Dame. I mean, the the record against the rivals is atrocious, and we're not talking about Jim. You know, just being there, as I said, the best job that he did was when he first got there with what he inherited from Brady Hoke. Since then, it's, I think, gradually declined, not in terms of overall record, but in terms of how they're competing against the um, the top-level competition against his key rivals. It has been woefully disappointing. Mm-hmm. And I think a challenging um, sell and a challenging um, uh, year coming up, because as you mentioned, There's going to be, whether it's his best chance or not, that could be debated. But I can tell you, another year of struggling against Ohio State, um, this time without Urban Meyer, would be very, very damaging to his future. That was our state of the program on the University of Michigan. Coming up next week, we take a look at the Washington Huskies. Yeah. You look at Chris Peterson's Pac-12 squad, the Washington Huskies next week, the number 13 team in the nation in the postseason poll in next week's state of the program. Now, you can always follow Chris on Twitter at Landry Football. I'm at Scott's on air. And you got to learn what NFL teams and college programs already know by joining LandryFootball.com today. And as we get into the scouting season, you get an even greater postseason discount. Free agency, the NFL draft, college recruiting, coaching moves, roster analysis on college and NFL teams, all the latest inside scoop on the college and pro game, all this much, much more for less than a magazine subscription. Now, a special postseason discount as well. You can also get the Landry Football Podcast every Tuesday and Thursday. This podcast, Rush the Field, every Wednesday. And for free, you get the War Room newsletter every week by signing up on LandryFootball.com. All you need to do is provide your email and you can get the inside information that's not available for publication on LandryFootball.com. Just tell us where you heard about it, and you heard about it right here on Rush the Field, the greatest college football podcast there is, Chris. Well, yeah, and uh, we, we love talking college football, and, man, I am so glad to be talking about something other than NFL officiating after, <laughs> after having been in New Orleans for the Saints game, uh, playoff game against the Rams. It has been uh, it's been quite a, a windfall in the NFL. And, of course, we've got all those breakdowns, as you mentioned, on LandryFootball.com. We're going to have all the senior bowl breakdowns of what's going on there um, as uh, I'm heading over there. And, of course, uh, for your, your NFL fans, 
We're going to break out our free agency and our grades by position. So it's one-stop shopping football. And as Scott mentioned, we're on top of all the news around college football, the NFL recruiting. So football doesn't stop. Even though the games stop right now, we get you prepared for next year's games. Understand the insights of the programs from uh, soup to nuts. Um, in the college and NFL scene, we've got it covered for you at LandryFootball.com. So join us here and check out my podcast, too, Landry, the Landry Football Podcast, every Tuesday and Thursday as well. Yep, and uh, we might even have a little something special for you come Super Bowl time, so you keep it locked in uh, for that. And Rush the Field with me, Scott Seidenberg, and Chris Landry can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com. Chris, enjoy the Senior Bowl. Hey, thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. A lot of good players here. Can't wait to talk about it. This is an In the Trenches with Ian Beckles. Quick Fix on Radio Influence. I'm not the guy that brings up the referees and bitches about the... I'm just not that guy because... The referees are, are human. Referees are going to make mistakes. I'm not the kind of guy to bring one play and say that's the reason why they won or that's a bad call, that's why they won. I'm not really that guy. That being said, when you have a play at the end of the game that the referees, because there's a lot of them on the field, um, when you see one play at that juncture of the game that's that important, and first and foremost, it was targeting... Almost like it was an instructional reel of how to target. You don't get away with that ever. You never get away with leading with your helmet and launching yourself. Never. Okay, so first and foremost, it was absolutely ridiculous targeting. Should have called that. I mean, every in every game you see that called. It's missed every once in a while. But in that situation, in a, on a 10-yard line, it, and that's the first thing. It's targeting. The second thing. The DB was not even close to looking at the ball. Not close. Zero. So you're going to allow a defensive back to uncoil on a wide receiver when he's not looking at the ball. Like, that's not even really playing defensive back. The defensive back, he he pretty much conceded that I can't let this guy catch this ball at this moment. I'm going to uncoil on him. I'm going to make sure he doesn't catch the ball. I'll take the penalty. I'll take the penalty. And uh, Nikel Robery Coleman, I never heard of him before. He's a defensive back. Like, they interviewed him afterwards, and he was like, listen, after I hit him, I heard the noise, just looked around for the flags, didn't see a flag. The referee said incomplete pass. He goes, I looked around again, still no flags. They asked him, was it a penalty? He goes, yeah. Yep. So the problem is, if you're a Saints fan, you don't want to listen to the opposition say that, yes, it was egregious, and yes, I did it, and they got away with it, because that got to make you sick to your stomach. In the Trenches with Ian Beckles can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.